Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. draw your attention this morning to the words found in the book of Exodus, chapter 32. And would you stand out of reverence and respect for God's word as I read it, Exodus 32, verses 1 through 14. Hear the word of the Lord. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day. And offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. The Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it, and sacrificed to it, and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. The Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It was April 13th, 1970, when these words crackled through the communication system to mission control. Okay, Houston, we've had a problem here. Mission Control responded by saying, this is Houston, say again please, to which the reply came the same as before, Houston, we've had a problem. The astronauts of Apollo 13 experienced the problem that jeopardized their return from space back to earth and to their families, but after constructing a makeshift carbon dioxide filter and operating on very little electrical power the crew splashed back down to earth five days later. The astronauts of Apollo 13 experienced an unexpected problem. And this phrase, now often changed to say, Houston, we have a problem, is the signal of an ironic understatement. When we read Exodus 32, we might think, Israel, we have a problem. But that would be a massive understatement. We live in a day and age that likes to avoid the word problem. No one likes to admit they've got a problem. No one likes to admit they've got problems. Problems are to be kept quiet, are to be downplayed. They are to be minimized. And if problems exist, there are excuses that we give as to why we have problems. It's not really our fault. It's just a product. Of, we're just a product of our environment. We're just impacted in such a way that it's made us like this. It's never our problem. It's always people out there who have problems. Their problems are what get in your way, right? I experienced this aversion to the word problem years ago when I worked at a job in Louisville. In my encounters with other employees and other clients, they would use euphemisms for the word problem. So you never had a problem, you had a challenge. Or you had an obstacle, but never a problem. Or one particular client that I remember she would not use the word problem. She would come to us and say, we have an opportunity. Sounds so nice, doesn't it? Like you're being given a gift. Oh, oh, thank you for this gift of this opportunity. But my crew and I always knew what that meant. There was a problem. We need to be very honest with ourselves. This morning, mankind has a problem. We have a problem, and the problem is sin. 
Sin is a failure to conform to God's moral law. It is missing the mark. It is falling short of the glory of God, transgressing God, His ways, and His design. Our sin is what separates us from God, and the world denies the reality of sin. What does it communicate to the world when professing Christians deny the reality of sin too? We don't like to use the word sin. Doesn't sound very positive. Doesn't make us feel good. No one wants to come to church and hear about sin. They will feel guilty. They will feel sad. They will be beaten up and deflated. But we must talk about sin. We have to talk about sin because it is our greatest problem. And because without understanding sin, we will never know the gloriousness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is not good news if sin is not the worst news. Or as Thomas Watson, the Puritan, wrote, the more bitterness we taste in sin, the more sweetness we shall taste in Christ. Is Christ sweet to you? not if you've never tasted the bitterness of sin. When we don't talk about sin, and when we don't call sin, sin, we deceive ourselves. We begin to think that we are not really sinners. Of course, we would never say that. We are smart enough to know not to say that we have no sin, but in our hearts, in our minds, what we really believe is that we don't really have a problem or a struggle with sin. For some, sin is not really a problem, and sin is not their greatest enemy. Those who would never say they have no sin, but think they have no sin, are only pretend sinners. So, there are those who know better than to say they have no sin, but in their heart of hearts and in their minds, they think they have no sin. And those people are only pretend sinners. Their sin becomes imaginary. But God does not save pretend sinners. He saves real sinners. And that statement is the most terrifying statement to you or it is the most glorious statement to you. Luther once wrote to his friend and fellow theologian Philip Melanchthon, pray hard, for you are quite a sinner. If sin is our problem, we need to be saved from our sin. But why do we need to be saved from our sin? 
We need to be saved from our sin because our sin brings upon us the wrath and the judgment of God. We need to be saved from our sin because our sin leads to death, our sin leads to hell, but more specifically, we need to be saved from our sin because we need to be saved from God. This is where Exodus 32 leads us. The Israelites sinned against God. They completely reject God in the most defiant, disobedient, disrespectful, dirty, and disastrous ways. Their sin did not get them ahead. It did not fulfill them. It did not bring them any peace. It put them at enmity with the Lord who had redeemed them from their slavery in Egypt. Houston, we have a problem with God. So what does this text of Scripture teach us? Well, last week we began to unpack that. And number one, we saw that we are to be horrified by the savage nature of sin. Sin makes us untamable, uncontrollable, wild beasts. Sin never gives us what it promises to give us. Give us it gives us emptiness, nothingness. We must be horrified by the savage nature of sin. But number two this morning, I want us to look at, we are to be sobered by the serious nature of judgment. We are to be sobered by the serious nature of God's judgment. Turn over with me for a moment as we begin here to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 provides us an accurate picture of what someone looks like before they come to Christ. And it says here very explicitly, we were by nature children of wrath. Why wrath? Whose wrath? God's wrath. God's wrath is all the fullness of His displeasure. We were objects designated for God's wrath. We were those who deserved to receive God's wrath poured out upon us because of our sin. And look at what it says here. We were children of wrath by nature. That is, we did not acquire the title of being children of wrath after we were born. We did not receive it so as to think that somehow we could give it away or lose it. We were born as children of wrath. And as such, we were justly deserving of God's judgment. We don't often like to talk about wrath and judgment, especially God's wrath and judgment. Often people think of that caricature 
of the hellfire and brimstone preacher who goes on and on in dramatic fashion trying with all of his might to make God's wrath and judgment seem terrifying that they might somehow scare people or drive them by fear into the kingdom of God. Here is where they go wrong, however. We don't make God's judgment and wrath seem terrifying. They are terrifying. Turn with me also over to the book of Revelation, chapter 6. Verses 15 and 16, Revelation chapter 6. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and every one, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? These people who are about to experience the wrath and judgment of God cling to their naturalism. What do they do? They call out to the mountains. They call out to the rocks. They call out to Mother Earth. They would rather face the destruction of natural elements upon them. They would rather have a a mudslide or a rock slide fall upon them and bury them alive than experience the wrath and judgment of God. They would rather cling to their paganism as they call out to the mountains and to the rocks to fall on them than turn to God. Notice here, people are not saved from paganism by the wrath of God. People are saved from paganism by the grace of God. That is what saves people. The wrath of God does not save people. God's grace and his mercy save people. If we do not know God's wrath and judgment to be terrifying, we will not comprehend the suffering that Christ experienced on the cross. We will lose all sense of extreme and utter thankfulness That there is to be among all Christians who realize Jesus Christ is our substitute on the cross. God's wrath and judgment was poured out on Him. And in our place, condemned, He stood, sealed our pardon with His blood. Hallelujah, hallelujah, what a Savior. And it was Jesus who knew his father to forsake him on the cross as he bore the wrath and punishment of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was for our sake that he was forsaken. For that is the effect of sin. Sin separates us from God, and we see that effect here back in Exodus 32. Notice what 
God says. There's been this idolatry, this paganism that God's people have fallen into in the first six verses. And now, verse 7, the Lord is going to instruct Moses. Remember Moses, still up on the mountain? He does not know what's going on down below yet until the Lord reveals it to him and shows it to him. And look at what God says to Moses. Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt. How is that different than how the Lord usually speaks? These are my people who I brought up out of the land of Egypt, but now their sin has separated them from their God. These are not my people. I cannot associate with sin. I cannot dabble in any kind of this stain whatsoever. These are not my people. These are your people, Moses. I am the holy God. I cannot look upon or approve evil or sin in any way. The sin of the people have separated them from their God. And the separation was because they had corrupted themselves. You see that there at the end of verse 7. Have corrupted themselves. That is, have defiled themselves. They have made themselves a stench before the Lord. And this was willingly, voluntarily, freely corrupted themselves. They had spoiled themselves because of their sin. But the Lord had seen this before. If you have your Bibles there, turn back to Genesis chapter 6. Verses 11 and 12. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. The Lord had seen people corrupt themselves before. The whole earth had done it. Before he sent the flood, before he saved Noah. These people, these people whom the Lord had saved out of Egypt, they were supposed to be different. They were not supposed to be like the people back in Noah's day. God had brought them out of the iron furnace by his strong and mighty hand. God had saved their firstborn from the destroyer. They had experienced miracles. They had seen supernatural phenomena, which very few people in history have ever seen. How long would that impression last upon them? Hardly a few months. How quickly they turned aside from the commandments the Lord had spoken to them and did the exact opposite in blatant disobedience. They made for themselves idols. That's what the Lord had told them not to do back in Exodus chapter 20. Verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. 
But that's exactly what they did. They made for themselves idols. And what does it say back in Exodus 32? Verse 8, they have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. Oh, but we would never do that, would we? We are not so fickle as the Israelites. Look at what Paul says in the book of Galatians, chapter 1, verse 6. Galatians 1, 6. I am astonished that you, and Paul is speaking to the church, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And notice how Paul puts it. You are quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Jesus Christ. It's very personal. And in deserting him, they really deserted the gospel. They deserted the gospel, and so deserting the gospel, they are actually deserting God and Jesus Christ and his grace. How quickly we can desert the gospel and turn to something else or to someone else to save us, turning to something that is no gospel at all. And we must remember that God's wrath and judgment are never capricious. That is, they are never willy-nilly. He is never rash or ill-tempered. It is always appropriate, right, and it is His unchanging response to sinners who remain in their sin. Yahweh, in a sense, gives them what they deserve and what they want. Look at verse 9 in Exodus 32. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people. Take that back to now verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make gods who shall go before us as for this Moses. They were trying to unseat the sovereignty of God. They were trying to overthrow God. They were trying to control God. But what does God say? God says, no one can overthrow my sovereignty. No one can overthrow my control. No one can do this to me and get away with it. I have seen. First it was the Israelite seen. Now it's God seen. First it was the Israelite saying, this Moses. Now it's Yahweh saying, this people. What about this people? Behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Do you recall the image that Aaron made? It was a golden calf or young bull. Yahweh is saying, these people have become what they worshipped. When I was about the age of nine or ten, My father worked for a company that had a head of cattle, herd of cattle. 
and there was one particular calf that needed to be bottle fed. So my father thought, as a nine-year-old or ten-year-old, that it would be good for me to bottle feed that calf. And so I gathered up the bottle, would go and feed that calf, and I remember one particular time, for whatever reason, I wasn't holding the bottle just right, the milk wasn't flowing fast enough, that calf threw me around like a rag doll as a nine or ten year old boy. And it used its head and its neck to whip me around, push me on the ground. I'm not embarrassed to say I went back to the car crying. What is Yahweh saying here? You become what you worship. The people were stiff-necked just like that calf, that young bull that they were worshiping. That neck that was obstinate and stubborn. In the story Pilgrim's Progress, written by John Bunyan, he has a man named Obstinate. And Obstinate tries to persuade Christian not to pursue the wicked gate, not to pursue Jesus Christ. Here's Christian with this burden on his back, and this man, Obstinate, who comes from Christian's hometown, the town, the city of destruction, he tries to prevent him from going. And he says, you are a fool, you are crazy, you are out of your mind. He even, he even accuses Christian of being wiser in his own mind and completely abandoning reason and common sense. Do you know what obstinate people do? Do you know what stubborn people do? They accuse others of their own predicament. Obstinate calls Christian a fool, out of his mind, crazy, thinking himself to be wise in his own eyes, lacking reason and common sense, when what was the truth? Obstinate was the one who was a fool, who was crazy, who was out of his mind, who was wiser in his own eyes, who had abandoned reason and all common sense. Now, obstinate and obstinate ones are willing to turn away from the Lord and turn others away from the Lord. They will ridicule, they will malign, they will tear down, they will keep people from fleeing to Christ. You are what you worship. You worship a dead, lifeless idol. You are dead and lifeless. You worship a stubborn, obstinate idol. You are stubborn and obstinate. God's wrath burned hot against his people. He was about to consume them. And that is what they rightly and justly deserved. Had God done this, he would have been in the right. God's judgment is real, it is serious, it is fair, and it is more terrifying than we can imagine. But that brings us to point three. We are to be assured by the saving nature of intercession. We are to be assured by the saving nature of intercession. At this point... We read these words, verse 11. 
But Moses implored the Lord his God. He entreated the Lord. He begged the Lord. He sought to appease the Lord. Here is Moses interceding on behalf of the Israelites. But notice what Moses doesn't say. He doesn't minimize the people's sin against the Lord. He doesn't say, you know, Lord, these Israelites, they're really good people. They're really salt of the earth people. He didn't say they're really good deep down. He didn't appeal to the morality of the people. Why? Because they didn't have any morality. They didn't have any good in them. What was on display was vile and disgusting. Moses didn't appeal to even his own ability or giftedness. Moses didn't say, God, let me go and talk to them. Let me go and smooth this over. Let me go and work this out. Let me make things right. Moses does not base his imploring and intercession based on the merit of the people or on the mastery of his own knowing of the people, but he goes to the heart of God, to God's mercy and to God's compassion, which flows out of the Lord's person and work. That is the basis of intercession. So look here in your outline, the basis of intercession Three bases of intercession. A, the Lord's redemption of his people. You see what the Lord says here? O oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with a great power and with a mighty hand? Here again, Moses goes back to the truth. He appeals to God's sovereignty. He appeals to God's mighty power. God has done great things in redeeming his people from their slavery in Egypt. God's saving work was the basis for the intercession. See the power of the Lord in him saving his people. So Moses appeals to the Lord's redemptive work. But B, Moses also appeals to the Lord's reputation among the nations. Yahweh has expressly said that he was bringing the Israelites out of Egypt so the Egyptians might even know his power. So the Egyptians might know that he was sovereign. Moses pleads on the basis of the glory of God's name. Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Moses is saying, God, let your name be seen as glorious as you act towards your people. Let not the Egyptians accuse you of doing anything that is evil, but let them know that you are the Lord of truth and the Lord of glory. And see, Moses appeals to the Lord's remembrance of his covenant promises. Moses goes back to the covenant with Abraham. Verse 13, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, whom you swore by your own self. It's as if Moses is saying to Yahweh, Yahweh, remember when Abraham cut those animals in half. Remember when there was a bloody path between them. Remember when you caused Abraham to fall into a deep sleep. Remember when you, through that symbol of that smoking fire pot, walked down that bloody path saying, if this covenant is broken, let me be like these sacrificed animals. Lord, remember your promises, your covenant with your people.
He was the one who promised to multiply their offspring as the stars of heaven. And all of this looking forward to that final offspring, the offspring who would come and whom all the promises of God in the covenants would find their yes and amen, and that is Jesus. Look at these three bases of intercession, redemption, reputation, and remembrance. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all of these. Jesus is the one who has redeemed his people by his own sacrifice and by his own death. Jesus is the one who is exalted so that God's reputation might be made known to all the earth. Jesus is the one who brings us to remembrance of the covenant that he secured by his own blood. This covenant of a new creation where now we are new creatures at peace with God. And look at what it says here back in Exodus 3 two. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Some translations say that God changed his mind. I do not think here that that is correct. Because Moses appealed to God's compassion, God's mercy, and God's grace... And God responded out of his unchanging character and responded this way because of the means of intercession employed by Moses. And now it is the intercession of Jesus Christ that saves us. Was it not for his work, his death, his resurrection, and his mediating work at the right hand of the Father, we would be lost. We would be undone. We would be eternally and rightfully condemned to the lake of fire. The basis of Christ's intercession is on himself, on his work, on who he is, on what he has done. And as those who have received the ministry of Christ's intercession on our behalf, we are now called into this ministry of intercession. And our intercession does not save anyone, but we are to implore God on behalf of other people, asking that he might work in their lives. Is there someone in your life? I bet you could think of someone. Someone right now in your life, in your mind, on your heart. Someone that you would want to intercede for, that you would want to go to the Lord to pray on their behalf. Maybe you've been praying for a long time. Maybe you've been praying for many years. You know what it is to plead with God. But what is the basis? Why do you intercede for that person? Do you pray to God And say to God, God, this person really is a good person. They really are a moral person. 
our pleading with God should not be based on what we believe a person's merit is for their acceptance with God. Because that merit will never stand up. So, when you intercede for someone, do not base your intercession upon their merit. Maybe, when you intercede for someone, you base your intercession on your love for them. God, I love this person so much. They mean the world to me. I care for them. I would die for them. That's good. It's good for you to love that person. It's good for you to care so much about that person. But your intercession for them cannot primarily be based upon your love for them. When you intercede for someone, plead Christ's merit. Plead his work and his blood and his compassion and his mercy and his grace. That is what is going to save them. Their merit is not going to save them. Your love for them is not going to save them. It's God's love for them that is going to save them. It's God's love for them that is going to change them and make them new. It's God's love for them that is going to remove a heart of stone and rock from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that works, that sees the greatness and the glory of God and so that they would fall down on their knees and say, we are no longer pretend sinners. We are real sinners who are in need of the grace of God through Jesus Christ our Lord and through his death. It's now the love of Christ that controls them. It's now the love of Christ why they live their lives. It's now because of him and his work that they live, not what they want, not their own lives, not them calling their, their own shots, but it is the sovereign Lord of the universe to whom they have bowed their knees and to whom they exalt with everything that they are. That's why we are drawn to him, and that's why we live for him. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Let's pray. Nothing in our hands we bring. Simply to the cross we cling. O Lord, if you should count iniquities, who could stand? If you would hold our sin against us and rightly punish us for the sin that we deserved, we would have been dead long ago. 
Let us hear these words afresh. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the love with which He loved us, has saved us, not by works of righteousness done by us, but according to His own grace and mercy. Thank you that we are saved by faith through grace. And Father, if there is someone here today who needs to come to Christ, let them run to Him in faith and repentance today, even now. And then let them be able to say with all Christians and with all believers, we had a problem with God, but now we are reconciled to God. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.